Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today, as he does most Mondays, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, uh, wouldn't be Monday without having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Indeed it is. Uh, welcome. It was terrific seeing you uh, at uh, the Navy League Sea Aerospace Conference and Trade Show. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about it later in the uh, later in our conversation. Uh, but before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C., and Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual symposium in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. Byron, uh, some great notes uh, over the past week. Let's start with a topic that it's obviously on everybody's mind, uh, Russia and what's next in its war on Ukraine. Vladimir Putin has withdrawn Russian forces uh, from the Kiev area and from the western parts of the country to rearm, resupply, augment, and reposition them for an attack uh, on the eastern part of the country under a brutal new commander who's repeatedly uh, demonstrated his penchant for savagery. Kiev has warned civilians to free the area in anticipation uh, of a brutal can- campaign. And indeed, uh, uh, civilians were targeted in Kramatorsk trying to escape uh, the region. And, and there is a fear that this uh, Russian uh, operation will involve weapons of mass destruction. What's your take on, on where we are, where we're going, and what it all means? Well, then clearly, you know, the starting point is the talk about a ceasefire has kind of evaporated and we're now back to, uh, you know, another stage in this war that's probably going to last well into the summer. Um, it, it's pretty clear that neither side has really achieved a decisive <coughs> advantage, although Russia clearly is, has uh, <laughs> seen a pretty significant setback to what their original plans are. And I think, you know, the interesting change are some of the, the weapons that are starting to trickle in, the, the more advanced systems from Slovakia, the, the reports about, you know, older German armor coming in, the Polish T-72 tanks are coming in. So we're kind of going from these, you know, infantry um, operated weapons to more complex platforms for the Ukrainians, but platforms that are still, you know, probably subpar uh, compared to, to some of the systems that Russia is deploying. So, uh, you know, you're seeing a reaction um, with U.S. and European defense stocks today, I think, in recognition of some of that that shift in, the, in a war that's going to go on longer and, as you mentioned, be just as brutal as some of the stages we've seen earlier, uh, certainly since the, the February 24th campaign was started. Um, I, should, I should point out uh, to uh, the audience uh, about casualty rates, right? This is very bad. Let's assume that the Russians have lost 15,000 uh, in the course of the last six weeks. Uh, one of uh, the number in our uh, little chat group that we have that discusses military history and strategic affairs pointed out, uh, right? Why don't, why don't you, you know, tell the audience some of the statistics uh, on how much worse actually World War II was, right? I mean, orders of magnitude worse. Yeah, well, but and yet it's still interesting. I mean, they're, they're not perfect analogies here. But, you know, if you looked at <laughs> Germany lost uh, a quarter of the tanks that it deployed in Poland in 1939. And 
you know, you can go back and look at Israeli <clears throat> or uh, Arab country losses in the in the '73 war, the October um, Yom Kippur war. Um, so I think you know this is just the reality of <clears throat> modern combat between two similarly armed conventional forces, which arguably you know we haven't seen a lot of, um, at least over the last twenty years, and. I think it's just a reminder, um, you know, how how much wastage there is uh, in the in these sorts of conflicts, and I think it should be a real eye opener uh, for the U.S. and for European militaries as well. Uh, we we have gotten into this um, mindset of boutique. Uh, sort of capabilities, right? That handfuls of systems are going to, you know, handfuls of really good systems uh, will um, offset uh, numerical advantages. I should point out that, right, the German army was losing 15,000 people a day uh, in yeah. January 1945, 400 something thousand uh, over the course of, of, of that month, right? I mean, so things can always get uh, a lot worse. Um, one of the questions that you asked in your note, uh, Byron, is what happens if the Russians start to veer more toward strategic weapons, right? There is a concern that nuclear, uh, chemical, or biological weapons will be used uh, in the eastern part of the country, right? Vladimir Putin is going to want to um, reestablish uh, a military deterrent, especially given how badly its forces uh, have performed uh, to date, albeit in a you know first-rung proxy uh, campaign. Um, what, what does it mean if Russia becomes more Right. I mean, how do how do we need to plan and accommodate for that in the investments we make going forward? Well, I think, you know, it's part of the larger question that's on my mind, you know, which is not just the war, but what does the Russian military look like in the 2020s? And, you know, to me, you know, there are a couple of things that are probably going to fall to the wayside there. The modern aircraft, uh, a Navy. Um, I think are probably going to uh, to be casualties here. And you, you could see Russia revert uh, to a greater reliance, certainly on tactical and strategic nuclear weapons. And then of course, their ability <clears throat> to use um, Iskander and caliber uh, ballistic and cruise missiles has also been pretty pronounced in this campaign, even the older Tachkins. So I think, <clears throat> you know, maybe, maybe their military by 2025 or 2026, it's going to look a bit more like you know the, the forces the Ukrainian the uh, the Iranians or the North Koreans have. I mean, I just it, assuming that the technology export controls are moderately um, effective against Russia. You know, their fiscal capacity, the the sanctions. Yeah, there's going to be work around, but I mean, they they are not looking at the same fiscal position that they had. Uh, and I think it's just going to be very difficult for them to reconstitute and, and introduce a new generation of weapon systems for their conventional forces. What that means for Western and, and uh, European contractors, you know, is kind of interesting. Um, you know, more missile defense, you know, I, I suppose at a point um, on, the, on the backside of this war, if there really are going to be security guarantees to Ukraine, there's probably going to have to be more offensive capability um, in, in NATO militaries to actually move forces in, into Ukraine to provide those security guarantees. And who really knows what Russia is going to look like um, in 2025 or 2028? I mean, there, there, there are periods in their history where, um, 
you know, if you if you see the same time of tumult, um, internal dissension, conflict that existed, for example, uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, um, throw in you know a large stockpile of chemical and nuclear weapons. Um, <clears throat> that's going to be a pretty interesting security challenge for the, the U.S., NATO, and other neighboring countries. So I, I think there's obviously a lot to think about here. Um, you know, above and beyond just the day-to-day reporting about what's going on in, in Ukraine. Are, are we thinking about budgeting realistically? I mean, for example, um, part of the Russian, modern Russian way of war is uh, depopulation. Uh, the other one is uh, cause uh, refugee and civilian, uh, right, an exodus of civilians in order to uh, pressure your, your adversaries. Uh, we've had nearly 5 million Ukrainians flee. Uh, many of them are in uh, Eastern uh, European uh, countries. Poland, obviously, home to more, uh, I think, nearly 2 million, uh, I think, if the number, if, if I've got that number right. Um, and we now have NATO committing to a greater forward presence uh, in states uh, that border Russia. And, and Finland, uh, for example, is considering NATO membership. And indeed, uh, there are those who tell you that that's actually almost all but likely, uh, doubling the contact surface between NATO and, and Russia, ultimately. The Russians saying that they're going to punish uh, the Finns. Um, I think anybody who knows Finland really well knows that's not going to really dissuade Finns uh, from, from doing whatever they want to do as a nation. I mean, ultimately, do we need to rethink forward garrisoning of troops, ammunition, and all the other costs and, and lasting costs, because this conflict might not end in any brief time frame that allows people to, you know, Ukrainians to return to Ukraine, for example. I mean, are we are we calculating the long-term costs of this accurately, I guess, would be my question. No, I mean, well, I don't think we really know yet. And that's why I think that all the debate, you know, Michael Hurston on your uh, Friday show talked about $100 billion on top of the FY23 budget. And that just seems, I mean, that's possible, but throwing that amount of money at the Department of Defense in this time frame is not going to reflect anything that the DOD should and will be learning from uh, a very changed security picture in, um, in Europe. And I think you know, there are a whole range of questions about what does it really mean when Germany steps up and hits a 2% goal of, of GDP and defense? Um, you know, the fact of the matter is Finland and Sweden have really very small active militaries. The fact that they would join NATO, I think, is important. Finland has a reserve system that's very intriguing. And I, I think if you look at their inventory, they have one of the largest inventories of artillery. Um, in, in, in Europe. So, um, but I, I, the point that I get back to, you know, as we've seen in Ukraine, the, the ability of Russia to really, you know, launch major offensive operations um, against even a reasonably armed military, I think is, it's really got to be um, looked at and, and pondered. And uh, I just don't, think that, you know, the idea that Russia could just pivot and march on Warsaw, you know, if they had their heads handed to them in Kiev, you know, imagine what happens when they, they get, you know, <laughs> cross the Polish border, for example. So I think it's a very different security environment, and it, it just has a whole range of ramifications 
in the size, posture, and the nature of the forces that NATO and again that other countries are going to have to look at as well. And there, there are second order effects that we could go into as well, you know. But um, but I, I think the idea that the DoD is just going to get all this money thrown at it um, willy nilly, a lot of that money to me could be very poorly allocated. Uh, if there's not a period here where we really do reflect and think through what this really means. I, I, I think that there are a lot of lawmakers uh, who are roughly where I am uh, on this, which is the administration built a strategic budget to make trade-offs and to focus more on the high end of war fighting and say, look, we, we can't do as much of the presence. Let's, let's focus on uh, as many tubes and shooters and, and, and that sort of thing, not recognizing that actually virtual presence can actually be absence. And you need both of that. You need presence tools like the littoral combat ship, just as uh, you need to have cruisers, destroyers, and a new generation of warships as well, and, and, and aircraft. So I think that that's a little bit where lawmakers are hey, let's not be pennywise pound foolish. It's all about avoiding conflict uh, rather than dealing with the ramifications or you know, sanctioning after the fact. We'd have been better off if we had managed somehow to deter the Russians from moving. Uh, and, and maybe that should be where we need to be with the Chinese to make them um, think twice about going into Taiwan, for example, as opposed to figuring out how to dislodge them uh, in, in, the event, in the event that they uh, end up in there. L let me ask you on a, from a technological standpoint, um, a very good mutual friend of ours, we had an opportunity to get together with him for dinner and was pointing out actually that it's only first rung technological powers that can do uh, enabling things right down to ball bearings, right? I mean, point out to the audience, China didn't develop its first ballpoint, pen, all Chinese ballpoint pen that didn't include a Swiss tungsten ball uh, until something like 2017, right? And and the rest of the world would say like, wait a minute, what are you, you've got to be kidding about that. But it is a lot of technological sophistication in something as simple as a ballpoint pen, right? Um, how do we need to think about technology, access to technology, right? Um, because the United States is sanctioning Russia and is trying to cut off technology flows, but the Russians are already finding workarounds to those sanctions, uh, right? Countries like the UAE uh, are helping in their part. China is helping in, in its part. I mean, India, indeed, a quad country is actually helping by continuing to buy uh, Russian military equipment. What are the things that you're looking for economically, technologically, that would mark sort of real inflection points in, in Russia's ability to wage war? In well, the, in I think you have to, you know, they've shut down, you know, <laughs> It's one thing for um, India, for example, you know, there was this talk um, or there was a report, I think Jane's Defense Lately had a report about um, expanding the rupal rupee agreement between India and Russia so Russia could continue to export weapons to, to India. But to the point about, um, and I think this is really important to, to recognize, Russia, it's not the Soviet Union. I mean, the Soviet Union, you know, industrialized brutally in the 1920s. Um, they, they got through World War II, but they also needed a lot of help from the United States. Uh, everything from Studebaker trucks to uh, aircraft and tanks that I don't think people properly recognize. Um, there was a very brief period 
in uh, right after World War II, where you know Rolls Royce could sell spay engines, and that was the beginning of the Russian jet aircraft industry. And so, and so now you're, and you know, there was a pretty sophisticated, call it spy network, I guess, that would would you know take technology, particularly out right. of Germany, and apply it to uh, to the needs of the the Warsaw Pact, the Soviet bloc. Um, Russia, you know, in the 1990s collapsed. Um, a lot of their machine tool industry that their, their, their defense industry currently relies on is there are some Russian machine tools, but um, a lot of the more advanced stuff is from Germany or Japan uh, to the point about ball bearings. You know, that's just a foundational uh, bit that Russia doesn't manufacture good ball bearings. They've relied on the West. So what I'm really going to watch for is <clears throat> we've had this whole rash of export controls that have been announced. The, the key thing is how they're going to be enforced. And absolutely boggle. I mean, Russia's going to be setting up networks. People can be bribed. Um, there are going to be third parties that will, will traffic in this kind of stuff. But I think it's going to be, the, their industry certainly has to go through a transition here. And, you know, I'd also relay the fact that um, there could be a brain drain in Russia, as per, you've seen this for IT people, wanting to get out of this country. So their, their ability to generate or reconstitute military power is going to be different than the trajectories they were on prior to, uh, certainly prior to, to 2022, and maybe even prior to, 2020, to, to 2014, when they, they first kind of kicked things off in Ukraine. Um, so I, it's going to be subtle. I, I think what I'd really like to see is a, a kind of a COCOM, type of organization that would coordinate all this among uh, like-minded allies in the United States. So that, that <clears throat> the same type of structure that at least tried to staunch the flow of technology uh, to the Soviet Union exists, exists in, uh, in, the, in the 2020s and beyond with so long as Putin or someone like Putin is in power in Russia. Uh, and I should uh, point out that uh, you uh, good 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 Cold War uh, approach there, right? The coordinating committee for multilateral export controls was uh, COCOM, uh, and um, you know obviously the Vosnar uh, was uh, part of uh, the entire regime of controlling technology uh, to the Russian, uh, which which did collapse through the latter part of the Cold War, and certainly um, excuse me, the latter part of the Cold War and, and the early uh, post Cold War uh, era. I should. Uh, point out uh, that GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain uh, command and uh, control. Uh, I want to uh, shift gears a little bit, Byron. I mean, you mentioned uh, in, in, in terms of uh, the $100 uh, billion higher number, and, and it is, would, would be a, a whopping increase. Um, even if lessons from this conflict are not necessarily learned, um, I mean, isn't there something to be said for actually spending the extra money as a guarantee, as an insurance policy to invest both in presence forces as well as high-end striking capability, right? Uh -huh. I mean, what's, what's the problem in, in doing both at a time when you're, you're, not sure, you're not sure what the future holds, right? Uh -huh. You do want to engage with allies and partners. And so yeah. things like the littoral combat ship would be important just as... Um, NGAD, right? The next generation air dominance aircraft would be, or or a, or a new destroyer. 
Well, I think the a couple of things. Throwing that much money, you know, because you have to, uh, unless you're really talking about expanding military personnel, uh, I mean, most of this is going to go to O&M procurement and RDT&E, I assume. Um, you can create your own inflationary pressures uh, in the U.S. defense sector. You know, Mike McCord during testimony last week, I think, reminded everybody that the Department of Defense does not use CPI. Um, it, it's not relevant to the way they measure their own costs. But, you know, this is an industry, um, U.S. defense industry, and the same is true in Europe, that already is facing capacity constraints. You know, where are they going to get the, the engineers, the, the craftsmen, the trade people to, to build all this stuff in that uh, short a time period? And then you have to ask is, is this a one-year bump? Uh, is it sustainable? You know, we're, we're, we're now have a flat or, or potentially in some days an inverted yield curve um, that usually for markets signals the potential of a recession. So you, you kind of get back to this, um, you know, rush to just spend money. I've got a note that I'm going to be working on uh, this week that kind of looks at we're back to interest rates, right? I mean, you've had a major move in kind of T-bill, T-note rates, um, you know, I want to look at what was embedded in the office and management budget projections, the FY23 budget, but interest outlays are going to go higher. And so are we ready to raise taxes to help pay for defense? Or is this just going to be money that's going to be borrowed again, uh, which I haven't heard anybody say, you know, what's the pay for in this? Um, and I, I think there's probably the rush to spend money, particularly if it's kind of a one-year bump, and then we're, we're back into debt and deficit arguments, um, you know, that, that could really be money that's squandered. And I'll say it again, Vago, I also have a problem when uh, defense contractors spend $15 billion or more on share buybacks. Um, and, you know, this money <clears throat> granted, it's money that they earned on contracts, but I think you're, you're seeing this play out with the pharmaceutical and the technology industries. Um, there's going to be pushback. Uh, if, if that amount of money goes to contractors, there may be a question of, you know, are the contractors, what, what's going on with the price and cost structure of these contractors? And, you know, I, I use the example of aid for the semiconductor industry, you know, when they also have been buying back uh, very significant amounts of stock. And that may be one of the problems that had gotten them into the pickle that they'd been in where they were not competitive uh, with, with uh, Taiwanese or, or South Korean companies. So, you know, it, it is kind of a be careful what you wish for um, perspective that, that I take when I hear $100 billion type numbers get thrown around. Um, there, uh, you know, there, there always needs to be, uh, right, ultimately better oversight and, and you know, true and genuine uh, partnership uh, between the department and the well, industrial you know, base. Yeah, Millie, Millie talked about it during the hearing and, it, and he, he's talked about this in the past. And I think it's a very valid observation from what's going on in Ukraine. And that is <clears throat> you need people for urban warfare. Um, and, and that's a land combat function. Um, you know, all the arguments, well, you know, we've got to pivot to naval and aerospace forces. Well, if the future is going to involve more urban warfare, then maybe you ought to be thinking about a, you know, five-year plan uh, to increase the size of the army and actually equip it with, with gear that would enable it uh, to right. avoid the same type of choices Russia had to make uh, 
in its initial drive to seize Kiev. And, you know, urban warfare, uh, you can't tell me that that's not going to be a factor in, in Asia Pacific. It has been a factor in the Middle East, and it, it's certainly going to be a factor in, in Eurasia in the future. Um, I, I, I think many people would agree with you, Byron, right? I mean, the United States combined arms way of doing warfare would have had infantry, dismounted infantry to be able to clean and keep people from firing these anti-tank weapons or uh, surface to air uh, munitions, right? We would have targeted fundamentally yeah. differently. We would have executed differently, um, which uh, is, is what's, you know, and, right? Amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. We invest considerably and indeed are really dramatically working to step up our logistics game, understanding that whether we're in Europe or in Asia, this uh, is going to be of paramount importance. Um, the um, Let me change. And, and right, I mean, one of, the, one of the challenges in this budget is the Army shrank, uh, as did the Air Force, as did, as did almost everybody except for the Space Force. But the Space Force growth is because of the Space Development Agency that's coming into the Space Force, right? I mean, it's not, a, and there is a little bit of organic growth, but it's it's not uh, necessarily that um, significant. Uh, so I'm all for actually uh, augmenting the size of the forces because uh, the most important thing you have is people. And this notion that you know a handful of the very best trained people are going to be able to operate handfuls of the very best equipment. I mean, ultimately, we find that you're, you know, even in the 21st century, you will lose hundreds and hundreds of armored vehicles in the span of a few weeks, right? And right. and so that that changes uh, should change your well, consideration. That goes back to the you know kind of pivoting off some of the debates last week and with the FY23 budget. You know, you apply the same sort of metrics and losses to naval forces. Uh, you know, we we are, we are absolutely headed in the wrong direction. Uh, you know, if, if you think you know you're going to have 280 ships uh, in your fleet after three weeks of the conflict with China forget about it. Um, you know, so the question is, you know, do you build that resilience? And this is a discussion we've had a lot of times, Vago, about, well, what's the capacity in back of that? So you can reconstitute um, and, and build stuff. So it's not taking five years. Uh, you know, Mark Kansian, I think, had written some very good work, done very good work on, on this question of industrial resiliency and how long it can take to replace some of these platforms in, in a, in a uh, conflict environment. And uh, I just think, again, that's something that we ought to be thinking about. And instead of, you know, here's the kind of one and done big pop for defense spending, you know, step back, look at this for three to five years. What's, what's your plan over the next three to five years? I personally, you know, think you ought to redo the national defense strategy for this kind of, of what does this really mean and how will it play out? Uh, I think it's uh, an excellent question. Uh, something I've, I've written about a lot over the decades is, you know, high intensity naval warfare ships are lost. Yeah. Uh, four, four decades ago in the Falkland Islands, the Royal Navy lost six uh, ships uh, in the span of uh, several weeks, uh, right? I mean, in, in the span of two months when the campaign uh, was full, right? Even, even shorter than that. Uh, but by the time, uh, you know, right, the fleet got underway in action and then things were about wrapping up in June. Um, let me uh, shift gears uh, very quickly, ask you sort of a broader strategic question, but then do want to get your uh, takeaways from budget hearings, uh, Navy League, as well as what to look forward to uh, in the week ahead. And we've got about uh, four minutes to do all of this in. But, but really quickly there, you know, President Biden is under criticism for, you know, do more, do more, do more, even though the 
United States is doing an extraordinary, uh, you know, providing Ukraine with extraordinary uh, support. Uh, and a very politically balanced and strategically minded friend today reminded me, you know, we're already crossing a whole series of what could be red lines with Putin, and that Joe Biden's number one obligation and responsibility is to defend the United States, um, right? Very important to help uh, Ukraine in this, but ultimately the obligation of the U.S. president is, is to do the best for the United States and its allies and partners. Do, do you think that we may be underestimating some of these risks? Are we getting it about right? Because it would seem to me that every time we take something off the table and we say, well, we can't do tanks and we can do air defense, we are shipping tanks and armored vehicles. We are sending air defense over there. And, and ultimately, we're likely probably going to end up sending airplanes over there as well, uh, given that the White House itself has left that door open. Are we getting this balance right? Is the president getting this balance right from your standpoint? You know, from my very limited perspective, Generally, yes. Um, I, I suppose you're you're doing just enough to kind of keep. Uh, well, the point we really don't know, Vagar, are what Ukrainian losses have been. Uh, you know, they they to the earlier discussion on the, the pace of loss in in a conventional conflict. You've got to believe that Ukraine has had significant losses in armored vehicles, artillery, air defense units, <clears throat> and combat aircraft, and so. I think this is the trick, you know, and it's something I've written about also, um, you know, this isn't like World War II where you could just hand over, for example, a Sherman tank um, to the British Army and the British Army would be effective in using that, that tank. Uh, you know, these are, these are, they're far more complex weapon systems. It's the idea about quickly handing over uh, Western kit, um, you know, with the, the, a, the ability to learn it, but I think equally importantly is the infrastructure to actually support it and sustain it. Um, that's, that's a pretty tall order. And that's something else we ought to be thinking about too uh, on a go forward basis. So I think, you know, enough is being done. Um, there, there's some really peculiar problems that I, I think have popped up. One, I, I believe it's 152 millimeter artillery ammunition that <clears throat> only Russia makes. Um, Right. You know, so again, you kind of get it that, that the Ukrainian military is now, they, they're effectively running out of it. So these are the kinds of things that I hope people in the Department of Defense and in the defense ministries in Europe are also thinking about, well, and they are, I mean, I, I think they are working these problems. Um, there is a fine line here. And, you know, you, you see support public opinion polls a lot of support for ukraine but i think there's a pretty you know red dividing line about the u.s becoming militarily involved in ukraine and that's a balancing act that uh you know i'll leave it to the administration to decide right but, you know it's a it's a it's a and certainly it's on the you know the minds of the germans and the way that they're um, handling this as well too um, we have two minutes, so we'll go into free association mode. The key takeaways from uh, Navy League and budget hearings last week, you did mention uh, uh, General uh, Milley and, and Mike McCord, obviously Secretary Austin also testified. Uh, takeaways, Navy League and um, from budget hearings. Look, Navy League was, you know, what's fascinating because we had that small window <clears throat> back in the summer uh, and early fall when there were also some trade shows. So, you know, initial takeaway, wow, it was packed. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, kind of the emphasis it was placed on 
networks on autonomy on kind of the, the technologies um, that the Navy wants to use. Um, the number, I think there were seven or eight panels out of the 30 some odd panels uh, that were held during the event that addressed technology issues. Um, I didn't get a sense that, uh, you know, there was a lot of new talk about naval ship designs, you know, DDGX or SNN, SSNX, you know, the next generation surface and, and undersea combatants. Um, I did think it was interesting, and I wrote about this, that you're, you're starting to see a more visible presence from some of the smaller startup contractors. Andural uh, was one that, that just kind of caught my attention with the, the sophistication of the display that they had. Um, you know, they, they, these companies really are still, they're important to watch as they, uh, they, they carve out a bigger presence in the defense sector. And last question, uh, what should the audience be tuning into over the week ahead? Well, treasury outlays, uh, which I don't think are going to be that important. Vago, that comes out on April 12th. Uh, it'll round out the March quarter and, you know, the outlays were still taking place during a period of uh, continuing resolution. So if the numbers don't look all that great, you know, I'd, I'd focus more on June and September when we have uh, FY22 appropriations in place. Uh, as always, there are a couple of think tank events that I think are going to be important to watch. Um, there is one, I believe it's on Wednesday, the German Marshall Fund was doing on this whole question about export controls and, uh, and technology to Russia. Um, so uh, even though Congress is not out this week, it is out this week on recess and, and next week as well, um, you know, kind of continue to listen for uh, whatever bubbles up on, uh, on defense budget expectations. And the unfunded priority list continue to be uh, dribbled out here. I know the Army one came out this morning. I count right now, I think it's about $20 billion in those undefended priority lists. So I kind of look at that as the floor of the FY23 budget increase. Um, and you know that ceiling may be a hundred billion that Mike had thrown out. And uh, Air Force, uh, right? I mean, the Space Force had its list. The Air Force would like more F-35s, for example, yeah. as well as I think a, a compass call, uh, an EC-37 uh, uh, aircraft. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure and have a good Easter Passover to you and your listeners, Fago. Thanks very much, Byron. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.